All right. Me again. And I got to say, I, 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 I was hoping for a little more excitement about that Super Bowl party. We'll try again. Let me just start off by saying we are going big on this one. We're, it's going to be a potluck. We're going to create a whole kid zone in the back. Families, parents, listen, I know my wife and I have two kids. We know how much easier it would be just to stay home and put them to bed at an early time and enjoy the game. But we are going all out to let, let this be an, an atmosphere and a, and a space where your kids can come and have an amazing time. Even if you don't like football, I think you're going to like what we have planned. So invite your friends and be ready to have a great time. Silence. Okay. Super Bowl, football, sports, all the things. This is so fun, at least for me. I hope you're having fun. It's so good to be in this space. If, if you're new, this has uh, been a, a, a journey for a lot of 2019 that we went on as a church, believing God for uh, our next home and, and, and just taking one step of obedience at a time. And to end up here in this incredible space, uh, just feel so blessed and so lucky. Room to grow room to be together as a family. Um, and tonight, we are going to talk about uh, 2020 and what we feel like God is calling us to in 2020. We're going to, I feel like naturally, I'm kind of just at my best when I'm just casting vision. And uh, I'm going to try and do that tonight, just cast a lot of vision for 2020. But I want to tell, I want to make a funny kind of uh, I want to take a moment to bring you in on vision and what it means to me. <laughs> you know, when I was 13, uh, 14 years old, a young teenager, I went to the, the eye doctor with my parents, or one of them. There's a dispute of, amongst us on our memory about who it was. But my one of my parents had an eye exam. I went along for the ride. I'm in the doctor's office. I'm flipping through the magazines and the books, just waiting for it to be over. The doctor walks in, and I had a question, because one of the books I had been looking at while waiting in the doctor's office, just had these circles on it and these little dots. Actually, I think we have a picture of it for you guys on the screen. It was a book of this, and I remember sitting there and just looking at, at the doctor and saying, hey, before you get started, what is this? This is the worst book I've ever seen. And he goes, oh, that's a colorblind test. Uh, people that are colorblind can't see the numbers. And I said, oh, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, yeah, the numbers. Nothing. And he rolled his little chair over next to me and was like, you don't see anything there? Nope, there, nope, there, nope, nope. Yeah, you're colorblind. And that wasn't like a watershed moment for me as a 13-year-old. I think I thought it was kind of cool and unique when I found out that not a lot of people were. And, and it was kind of a badge of honor for me. I became known as the Cody the colorblind kid. I just, like, it became, hey, welcome to class. Share something with us you don't know. We might not know. I'm colorblind. It, like, sympathy. It was great for me uh, as a young teenager. Now, I put that up on the screen just as like, hey, in case any of you have gone your whole life not knowing, now you might know. I took a, I, my wife and I took a test today while I was prepping for uh, tonight, and um, she got a 91%. She got 100%, uh, let's just say. Uh, um, there was one that she wasn't sure on, and she could have went either way, so she got it. She got a 91 on the colorblind test. I got an 8%. So I am colorblind. There's that sympathy that I love getting as a 13-year-old. But now as a 30-year-old, I look back, and it's startling to me that I went 13 or 14 years 
having no idea that there was something off about my vision. I had no idea that I was not seeing the same thing that almost everyone else in my world was seeing. I'll think back to that and just think, if I hadn't been there that day, how long would I have went having no idea that I, I, my, there's just something a little off about my vision? And I think it's important for us as people and as followers of Jesus to every once in a while we need to step back and ask the question, how's my vision? Now, I'm not talking about eyesight. You can have perfect eyesight and lack vision. Vision is knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it in the season you're doing it in. So for me, as a 30-year-old, as, as a husband, as a father, I step back. And the turn of the year is such a critical time for this. It's a, it's a convenient time to step back and say, what's my vision for 2020 as the calendar turns? What's my vision as a, as a husband? season are Kate and I in right now? Because we're not in the same season we were in in year two or three. How do I pursue my wife in year eight of marriage? How do I parent a soon-to-be five-year-old and a two-year-old? Because you can't treat them like they're younger. And you start to just think, what's my, what am I doing in life on a day-to-day basis? What am I saying yes to? What am I saying no to? What am I putting my hands to in this season of life? Tonight, I want to bring us in as a church onto what I feel like the vision for us as a church family and as individual followers of Jesus is for 2020. Man, when I, when I stop talking, it gets really quiet. I'm going to, that's just a fact, so I'll just move on. <laughs> yeah, I was praying before the service and um, before we jump into uh, 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 what we got for 2020, what I feel like God's speaking. This morning as I was praying, I felt like God just, just highlighted something. So this is for someone in the room. I don't know who it is. But 2019 was, was a hard year for some of us. And I, I'm excited for 2020. I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to move in to what God has in this year. But I know a lot of people in the room are coming into this. And before we're, it's a little hard to get excited about the prospect of 2020 because we're kind of limping in from 2019. And it didn't go the way we thought it would. And, and the things we wanted to grow in, we didn't grow as much in. And the breakthrough we thought we were going to get, maybe we didn't see it. The sin cycles that we've been battling for so long, they're still there. And the insecurity is still there. I, and I want to highlight insecurity. It's the word I felt like God highlighted for me. And I want to be real with you guys. I have never battled insecurity like I did in 2019. In my life, I've never had to struggle with every kind of insecurity you can imagine, from how I look to how I dress to how I talk to how I work to how I parent to how I husband to how I do at the gym. Everything in my life, 2019, it was rough. And as I'm praying this morning, I felt like God highlighted Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah 1 is the story of who we know as the prophet Jeremiah. But in the story, Jeremiah 1 He's just a guy. And God says, hey, I got something really big and really important for you to do. And Jeremiah is insecure. And he says, I can't do that. God, asks, God actually tells him, you're going to be a prophet. You're going you're gonna to be like basically saying, you're going to communicate for a living. You're going to be my mouthpiece for a living. That's going to be your job. And Jeremiah says, I'm too young. I can't do it. I'm not a good speaker. I'm too young. I can't. And God makes a promise to Jeremiah. 
that Jeremiah believes. And now you and I today open up our Bible to the book of Jeremiah, one of the most influential prophetic voices in Scripture. Here's what I want to submit to us before I actually start our message tonight. I know there's pain and I know there's insecurity out there for a lot of us. But I felt like the Lord said, where there's pain, there's a promise to be believed. And if there's a promise believed, there's a platform to reach people. That's a lot of P's. So I'm going to say it again. Where there's pain, there's a promise to be believed. And where there's a promise believed, there's a platform to reach people. Here's what I felt like God said this morning when I was praying. I felt like he highlighted that there are people in this room. Two things I'm just going to highlight and then I'm actually going to start preaching. There are people in the room that struggle with lust. I felt like the Lord said, where there's pain, where there's that pain of I just, I'm not enough. I'm not, this thing is robbing me. I just can't seem to get rid of it. I can't seem to move on. If you'll believe the promise of God, and I'm not even telling you which, the, which promise it is. You get to go find out for yourself what the promise of God that he wants you to believe and hold on to. But there's a promise for you to be believed. And if you'll believe that promise, that thing that's eating your lunch today, tomorrow you will have a platform to pull other people out of lust. You'll have authority to speak into other people's lives. The other one was pride. There are people in the room that just, they think to themselves, I'm just like never, I'm never going to be known as the humble one. Like I just can't get out of my own way. I don't want to, I don't try to, it's just I can't get rid of this pride. There's a promise to be believed. And if you'll believe the promise, if you'll walk with God through the hard places of believing the promise, he'll give you a platform to speak into other people's lives and to teach people and to model with people and to pull people up into the humility you were made for. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. 2019 is over. 2020 is going to be a good year. All right, turn with me, if you have your Bible, to the book of Nehemiah. That's where we're going to be tonight. <laughs> Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, I, and you, I hope, I hope, I hope that tonight, after we're done, you get a little glimpse into why. See, as I, I was going to walk through about half of the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to just pause in a few places. I'm going to highlight the word of the, of the year for us as a church and, and kind of pull some things out. But I want to give a little context for the book before we jump in. The book of Nehemiah is about a guy named Nehemiah. When we enter the story, Nehemiah is off in Persia serving a king. Now, he's not royalty. Nehemiah is not a part of the royal family. He is serving a king as his cupbearer. He's far from home. Nehemiah's home is in Jerusalem. He's in Persia with a king, and his job is to taste the king's wine and the king's food and make sure that the king isn't about to be poisoned. So his job every day is to wake up and die on behalf of the king. That's Nehemiah. But what being a cupbearer also gives you is rare access to the king. And we're going to look at that here uh, in just a moment. Rare access to the king. I, when I was uh, about 18 years old, somebody prayed that over me and it changed my life. 
You know, I don't know if you're familiar with people praying words over you. If, if you aren't, just stick around here for a while. You'll get it. Someone put their hand on my shoulder once and said, hey, I just feel like there's, there's this random verse at the end, the last verse of Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah says, I was cut bare to the king. And I feel like that's what God says over your life. And I went probably four or five years having no idea what he meant by that. And as I'm studying this passage, I was getting revelation that a cupbearer to the king has unfettered access and can ask the king anything. He sees the king when no, where no one else does. It's, there's a level of intimacy there. We're cupbearers to our king. Let's, uh, let's start in Nehemiah 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So pause. We've entered into the story. Nehemiah has just gotten word that his, his city, Jerusalem, is in shambles. And I was reading, I was studying for this, this, uh, this message, and um, there's, there's two things I want to highlight. One, it, was, it wasn't okay to be sad in the presence of a king in ancient times. Like this dialogue is so fascinating when you look through the lens of in ancient times, if you were in the presence of the king, you had to be happy because the king was everything. And so that's why he even, and that's why it's a startling moment when the king looks up and Nehemiah has just gotten word somehow from family or friend that his homeland is in shambles, that Jerusalem's walls have been destroyed, and he's physically like he doesn't look right. He's upset. Because a wa walls to a city, walls to the city of Jerusalem would have meant everything. We have, no, we have no understanding of what walls to a city would mean for us today. But if you think about it for them, walls were, were like the epitome of safety. I mean, if you were a city and you didn't have walls, you were basically camping. And you were just like ripe for the picking. The material that these walls were made from mattered. How big, how nice, how strong was a show of a city's strength and, and, and prestige and so for Nehemiah to find out that his homeland, the gates and the walls have been destroyed, his people were, uh, were vulnerable. It wasn't just like a, we, 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 we can read this and be like, what's the big deal? If someone came and told me that Chicago, like a building fell down, I'd be like, that is a bummer. But I wouldn't go crying like, God, we've got to like, go back and rebuild that building. Because we just can't really comprehend. But this is a huge deal to Nehemiah. This is a huge issue in his day. The king said, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors, governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct 
or safe passage until I arrive in Judah. May I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. This is astonishing when you think Nehemiah is just a guy and whose job is to die for the king. And here he is saying, I want time off work. I want, you to, I, I want uh, the materials to rebuild, and I want an army convoy to protect me. It's crazy. And the king's like, yep. I just want to know, like, you know, you might maybe have heard in, in Christian circles around here this phrase, waiting on God. Has anybody heard that? Is that like a phrase? No, like wait on God. Okay, so here it is right here happening in Scripture. Nehemiah is in a conversation with a king, and the king says, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah prayed to the God of heaven and then answered. If you ever need a biblical backing for why we do this thing called, hey, I'm just going to wait on God. I'm just going to ask God for a second before I respond. I'm going to say, hey, God, how would you have me respond to this text? Hey, how would you have me respond to this conversation? I'm just going to wait on God for a second. Okay, here's what I feel like. Here's what I feel like. People are, I've talked to many people who are like, that's so weird. Why would you do that? Well, it worked for Nehemiah, so I'm going to keep doing it. Okay. So Nehemiah heads back to Jerusalem. He starts inspecting the walls and assessing the damage. He gathers a group of people to help him start to rebuild. Here in Nehemiah 2.17, here's his speech to his first group of helpers. The, the, the men and women who are going to help rebuild in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. I want to pause the title of the series that we're launching in is called Brick by Brick. Because when I look and I pray into 2020, I feel like God highlighted this story, this passage of Nehemiah, where they went back and they assessed their walls and they said it's time to rebuild. Now, I want to, before I go any further, I want to make something very clear. This message in this series has absolutely nothing to do with a wall. Absolutely nothing. For those at home listening, this is not about a wall. This is not about calamity that we have been overcome by and there, we're, we're standing in piles of ruins and must somehow muster the strength to rebuild. That's not what this is. This is, this is God highlighting the story and saying, it's time for us as a church to step back and to assess our wall. And when we say our wall, as we go throughout the rest of this, this message, our wall is our relationship with Jesus. And to assess our relationship with Jesus and then to start to build brick by brick. I don't want to get to the end of 2020 and look back and say, well, my year had a lot of ups and downs, and, and, but I'm no, I'm no different than I was on January 5th, that first Sunday. I haven't grown, I haven't matured, I haven't focused on anything, I haven't put my hand to work at all with my relationship. 
All of this stuff happened in my family and my work and financially and all these different things. But my relationship with God, it just, I didn't work on it. I felt like God said, plain as day, it's time to work with me on our relationship. That's our vision. It's like the simplest vision is that you and I would honestly assess where are we with Jesus? It's so easy to coast. It's so easy to just rinse and repeat every week. You do what you do. You get into rhythms. You show up at church. You show up at life group. You do the things. You do your best. You try hard at work. Things don't work out sometimes. Sometimes they do. Life is hard. Life is good. I worship. I cry. I pray. I do it all again. And just look up, and it's six months later. And there's, there's Jesus just loving you, saying, hey, I'm right here. I'd love if you, like, focused a little bit with me. You know, the, the other title that I almost, uh, we almost went with for this series was just probably would have gotten me in some legal trouble. Just put a Nike swoosh up there and say, just do it. I just feel like there's this, this momentum of the Spirit for us as a church to say, hey, it's easy to get overwhelmed with the scope of a project and just quit before you start. It's easy to be like, I am nowhere near where I want to be with Jesus. My spiritual maturity, I am so far, and I look at that person and this person, and oh, they're so holy, and they're so good at this, and I'm nowhere near, and I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what to do, and I'm just going to show up next week at church and hope that if I just keep showing up, I'll figure it out one day. I know because I was there for a large part of my life. But there is something that Jesus is calling us to where there's this blend of, hey, just do something. Just do something. Hey, you don't need it. You know, you got, you're hearing people that are like spending the first hour and a half of their day like just reading scripture and praying. Okay, don't do that. Maybe 10 minutes. Maybe just talk to me. Maybe just think about me. Maybe go a whole day. Maybe not go a whole day without thinking about me and how much I love you. Like maybe, maybe turn on a worship song and just see what happens. There's just this gracious invitation out of the book of Nehemiah to say, hey, I don't know if your wall's completely torn down or just cracked a little bit or just starting to deteriorate. I don't know if pain has come in like a wrecking ball and just destroyed your wall. I don't know if, if disappointment has started to chip away at your wall. I don't know if, if, if discouragement or friends or family or finances or lack of this or lack of that, has just, there's just a few bricks that have started to crumble and started to fall. I don't know what your wall looks like. I don't know what your relationship looks like. But I know that whoever you are in this room, whether you, this is your first time in a church or that you've been following Jesus for decades, there's something for all of us to put our hands to and just do something. Just pursue, just take a step of faith and pursue Jesus brick by brick. I want to keep going looking at the story of Nehemiah because I think there's some things for us to learn from this story again. This story is about Nehemiah rallying a city to rebuild a wall. We're going to look at it through the lens of a people focusing on building into their relationship with Jesus. You with me? All right. So Nehemiah 3 is actually a fascinating, it's just, it's a roll call of builders. It's like a genealogy of builders. 
where, uh, where Nehemiah just starts to list off. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I think we have Nehemiah 3, 1 through 3. Now, the entire chapter of Nehemiah 3 is this, what we're going to show you. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it, set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by sons of Hesanah. 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 They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. A couple things from this. I, I kind of uh, miss, I kind of wish we lived in a place that just named things by what was around them. If you read this, all the gates are just, they kind of looked at what's around, like this is the fish gate, this is the sheep gate. That would be really helpful for some of us. But when you read the entirety of, of Nehemiah 3, you notice that the call to build was for everyone. He didn't gather the contractors. He didn't gather the skilled craftsmen. If you read, the priests are working, the merchants are working, the goldsmiths are working, everybody. The call to build was for everybody. Don't be overwhelmed by what you're not. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't, to, to grow, to, to take a step and start building into your relationship with Jesus, the call is for all of us who call ourselves disciples. It's not a super Christian or a really holy person that we'll just let them do it and then try to do what they do. We're all called to build. Now, I'm going to say something here that maybe doesn't get said enough in church. But you guys live in the real world and you know this truth. Everybody is not a fan of Jesus. Everybody is not going to like you or me because we follow Jesus. There is opposition when we start taking steps towards Jesus. We can expect opposition. I don't know what that opposition is going to be, and I don't want to, this isn't doom or gloom. I'm not a doom or gloom guy. But I just think the reality is I don't think we're setting anyone up for success. If, if we walk out the doors and you're like, yeah, go tell everyone you love Jesus. They're all going to love it. They're all going to love it, and they're going to love you, and they're going to love everything about you and Jesus. It's going to be awesome. You start building in brick by brick your relationship with Jesus. You can expect what happens in Nehemiah 4.7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. This is about to go totally braveheart. The next few things I'm going to read, like give me chills, thinking about standing there and listening to Nehemiah say this. Here's Nehemiah's response to the opposition of building. Verse 13, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. 
nothing. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. But from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who were carrying the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Y'all, that's cool. That is really cool. And, and as I was praying and saying, God, okay, we're not rebuilding a wall. Like, the, like this doesn't literally translate to what I'm trying to say here. I felt like just the, the, the word of the Lord for this was relationship with Jesus is something worth fighting for. It has to be. Religion's not worth fighting for. Trying to be someone you're not is not worth fighting for. Trying to act like you know what you're doing and you've got it all figured out and you're way better than you really are. It's not worth fighting for. But relationship like Jesus, Jesus is worth us fighting for. It's worth us looking at opposition. And here's what I want to say. Opposition is such like a, like a scary word for you to start imagining, opposition. Can I say opposition is in the morning when I wake up and I do not want to pursue Jesus at all. I want a Pop-Tart and I want the kids to go back to bed. That's opposition. Opposition, you just, you know your life. You know the little things that come up every day, the little thing that, ah, I could, I could press in, I could, I could do this, I could... I could try to fight for that, but uh, this, is, this is way easier to just go back to bed or to go hang out with these people or to uh, turn on the TV or just pretend I'm not wanting to, like, whatever opposition is. Relationship with Jesus is worth fighting for, and there are people in the room that I fully believe you need a, you need a fresh encounter with Jesus to remind you that he's worth it. We need to be reminded that we're not getting up and spending time with Jesus. We're not, you know, going to bed, reading our Bible. We're not coming to church. We're not worshiping. We're not praying. We're not surrendering. We're not walking in friendship with the Holy Spirit because we're trying to, to earn a place in a, in a religion or because we're trying to, to be better than we are, but we're doing it because Jesus is worth it. And he's better than, than anything else. And just like the gospel says, when the disciples say to Jesus, where else would we go? Where else would I go? I know this is really hard. I know I don't understand life right now, but you're worth fighting for because I don't know what else I would do. Building brick by brick a relationship with Jesus is worth fighting for. Nehemiah 7, 8. So here's what's happened between Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 7. The, ball, the, the wall is rebuilt. They withstand the opposition. Nehemiah becomes the governor of the city of Jerusalem along with a guy named Ezra who becomes the high priest. They start completely restructuring how Jerusalem does life. And I found this as I was reading this, this another list, another sort of genealogy that kind of stuck out to me. 
And that's in Nehemiah 7, verse 8. And I just said verse 8 through 20. But this most of Nehemiah 7, starting after verse 8. I'm not going to read it, but it's up on the screen. These are, these are the numbers. These are the list of the thousands of people that upon the wall being rebuilt came back home. And it goes on a lot further than this. And that's just something God just, just highlighted to me. If you and I, see this is a personal call for 2020. I believe for us, is, if you're a part of Antioch, and, and I believe for us as a family, because we're, because we're a part of the, of the body of Christ, then when you and I personally build into our relationship with Jesus, it affects the community. When we're all building together, when we're all dedicated to just taking whatever step we can, pursuing Jesus, pursuing growth, getting out of our comfort zone, saying yes to Him, no to the world, whatever, then suddenly the culture of our community and our family is being built by all these individuals that are a part of a family that are saying the same, yes to the same thing. The, the, the people in Jerusalem rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem and it became a safe place for people to come home. I want this to be a safe place for people to come home. When I look at the city, I want, this, I want our church to be a safe place for people to come in and encounter the love of God and the person of Jesus. When you and I will commit to the simple yeses of building into our relationship, taking our relationship with Jesus a little seriously and pursuing Him because He's worth it and He loves us like crazy. He's got good things for us and it's not religious and it's not vain and it's not for the sake of some other person's name or the name of Antioch, but for the sake of your life and your future. When we do that, this becomes a safe place. Can I say we're building something here? We are building something. We are not a church that has, you know, stepped back and said, we've got it. We've got a church. We've got the chairs and the lights and, and look, a huge stage. I used to be that far off the ground. Now I'm that far. Look, at we made it. We're not, like, I want you to know. We're building something. Welcome. If, you're, if you can hear my voice, you're building something with us. You are a part of building the culture of this church family. And my heart for us is that that culture would be marked by a simple yes, a simple I will build. I will pursue Jesus. And I don't know. And I'm not going to look to my left or to my right. You read that roll call in Nehemiah 3. There are people, there were some families that all they could do, it doesn't say why, all they did was rebuild the wall right outside their house. And there were people that it would say like, and then this group came and they re rebuilt the wall from here to Ogden. I don't, like we just have to be done <laughs> looking to the left and the right and like, hey, how much are you building? How holy are you? And, and how good are you at this? And how much of, where's your relationship at? And we just, just build. Just Step back and say, God, where do I, where am I with you? Where would you have me put my hands to in 2020? 
to pursue intimacy with you, to see growth. Brick by brick. Last little verse I want to pull out of Nehemiah 8 here, or out of Nehemiah is Nehemiah 8, 17. This is at the end of that list of the, the, the returned exiles. In verse 17, it says, The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters, lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. I don't want you walking out of this room thinking that the, the vision for 2020 is for you and I to get really serious about works. Really serious about what we're doing. And are we doing it good enough? Are we doing it fast enough? Are we building as much as the next person? Are we building as fast as the next person? Just do it for your sake. For the sake of your life. Like Nehemiah rallies his people. For the sake of your family. For the sake of your future. For the sake of you. In 2020 and beyond. Just pick up a brick. Pick up a brick. And, I, and over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking basically every week. We're just going to be talking about a brick. Hey, here's something that maybe you need, to, you need to pick up. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's spending time with God. Maybe it's friendship with the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's surrendering everything to Jesus. Maybe, uh, maybe it's discipleship. Maybe it's community. Maybe it's saying yes to this and no to that. I, we're just going to talk about the different bricks that are before us. And ask Jesus to highlight, hey, where do we need to build? That our joy may be like none we've ever had before. Would 2020 be a year where our joy is unmatched? Did you know you could have the worst year of your life at work and have the best year of your life in God? Like, I don't want to get to the end of 2020 and let my litmus for if I had a good year or not be how well my kids did in school or how much money are made or how big the church or how little the church. I, yeah, maybe everything hit the fan. But man, I built with Jesus. Man, me and Jesus have never had a better year. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what else is going to, I don't know what's going to happen in Kate and I's life in 2020. But there's an invitation for me personally, to have the best year ever with Jesus. If I'll just do it, if I'll just pick up a brick and say, okay, I, I want to do this with you. How do I do this? Jesus, you love me more than I could ever love you. How do I do this? Build with me. Let's do this thing together. There's your vision for 2020, brick by brick. All right. I'll try again next week. It's okay. It's okay. You know, I'm going to lay my head down on the pillow tonight. I'm going to ask God, won't they clap? Like, won't they just be really energetic and Kate is going to roll over and say, won't he do it? Won't he do it? Hey, if you're in the room tonight... And you don't know Jesus at all. The invitation is the same to you. He so desires relationship with each one of us. He loves us enough 
to come purchase that relationship in the most painful, excruciating, humiliating way, purchase it for you and I, dying on the cross, defeating death, raising again, so that you and I could have life eternal and life abundant right now. The psalmist says that in the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy. And we have the presence. He left it here in you and me and for us to walk through life with. The invitation is for all of us to build into that relationship. I'm going to invite the band to come back up as I close out. I just want to pray over us. I want to pray over us as we go into 2020. I want to pray for you in the room. If you don't know Jesus and you want to know, if you want to start for the first time ever just building in, what does, it lead, I don't, what does following Jesus look like? How do you do that? Well, let's just do it. Let's just figure it out together. Join me as I pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love me so much that you purchased me, you purchased relationship with me. Jesus, I invite you to be the Lord of my life. I don't even know fully what that means, but I know I need it. I know I can't be my own Lord. I I can't keep going on my own. Because on my own, my only litmus for my life is how good I am or how good I'm doing, and it's never enough. I'm never enough. Jesus, would you be enough for me? I believe you are who you say you are and that you did what you said you did for me. I love you and I need you. Come, Jesus. Amen.